Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ podcast. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about feminism and gender. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a dance floor top, kitchen bottom. And I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Slate's Outward section. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, or the gay she. And my sexual orientation is Insta photos of engorged heirloom tomatoes and actual eggplants right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Brandon Tensley, the associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a fan of picking fights with anyone who thinks that Kylie refers to anyone other than Kylie Minogue. So we're here... We're queer, and we're making a podcast. Yay! I know. This show's been in the works for so long, and we're very excited that it's finally ready for human ears. If Brandon sounds a little weird, it's because he is joining us from Australia. Hello from down under. That's commitment. I love it. It's amazing. (laughs) It's just magical to think that our queer voices are bouncing through outer space. I don't really know how uh, Skype works, but I'm assuming there's a lot of black magic that's involved right now. Black magic, queer magic. (laughs) Exactly. Speaking of queer magic, uh, Outward in Slate has long been your spot for smart, fresh coverage of LGBTQ life, thought, and culture. Uh, And in this monthly podcast, we're going to bring you even more of that stuff. Um, And so the way we're going to do it is each uh, episode is going to be focused around a different theme, and we'll do we'll do segments sort of riffing on that theme. Uh, and I wonder if Brandon can tell us from down under uh, what the theme this month is going to be. <laughs> I would love to. So today we're talking about roots, as in the stuff at the root of our queer identities. Uh, we'll be talking about our own roots, of course, and in a segment called Straight Studies, we'll also be in looking into whether our hetero cisgender friends have any roots of their own. We'll also have a chat with our colleague Alex Barish about the wisdom of looking for queer roots in biology or not wisdom. Uh, But first, I think we should open with an inaugural edition of Pride and Provocations. Yes, we are going to kick things off with uh, our very first branded segment that we're calling Pride and Provocations. So the first part, obviously, is named for that month of the year when we all parade half naked through the streets and street people are encouraged to give us their seats on public transportation and let us cut them in lines. So rude when they don't do that. I know. It's it's amazing how many people don't know that that's what Pride Month actually means. And the provocation part is named for the iconic and controversial art exhibition that was helmed by Bette Porter in season one of The L Word. It was incredibly provocative. So provocative. Provocating (laughs) exhibition. So, Brian, are you feeling pride or provoked by the actions of your fellow queers this month? I'm feeling a little provoked. This is probably like a little 
much of me to be provoked by this, but but I'm going to share it anyway. So, you know, it's it's summer. It's time for a lot of queer parties are going on. People are posting their selfies on Instagram from these parties. And I'm seeing a lot of folks, particularly in the, let's say, the, the gay male community, wearing leather harnesses who are not leather people. Oof. So what I mean by that is, you know, there, there's a long and rich culture of leather folk that, that's existed, you know, around the world in the U.S. Uh, for, for decades now, certainly since the 70s. And they have their own traditions, their own um, rituals, their own, you know, their own culture, right? And it, it's a beautiful one. It's not mine, actually. I'm not complaining about this uh, as a member. Uh, I'm not a member of that group, but I, I love it. I respect it. I'm glad it exists. The like two times I've gone to the Eagle. It's been great. But they're their own people. And this harness is like one of the main signifiers, I think, of membership in that community, right? Uh, But I'm seeing it on all kinds of folks who are definitely not in that community and who are using it as just kind of like a chic little accessory. And it just bothers me. It irks me. It's like if it's not your group and if it's so strongly associated with a particular uh, subculture of our of our community, then maybe it's not for you. Maybe maybe it's not just like cute. Maybe it maybe it's actually something that's important to folks. And and uh, you should think twice before wearing it. I don't know if I'm off base with that, but I I wonder what you all think. It does provoke me. Would you feel differently if the harness was made out of like nylon or straw or something yeah it's totally it's not the shape it's not like the act you know the the notion of a harness it's just that they've run into like the leather shop and annoyed all the people in there Uh like while (laughs) buying their harness for like the one party they're going to or whatever you know uh that that's the thing that bothers me no you can if you weave one if you crochet one you know in in (laughs) rainbow hues then by all means but just the leather thing itself is what provokes me yeah I, too, am feeling, feeling provoked right now. Brandon, give us yours. So I am feeling pride this particular month. Um, and so that's mainly because I finally saw Mamma Mia 2 last weekend. <laughs> um, and it's a movie that I've been waiting to see. And it's also a movie that I basically knew that I'd love. I really loved the first one. I was obsessed with the soundtrack before I even saw the second one. But in particular, queer people's reaction to the movie, the way that queer people have embraced it, um, has really just kept me laughing and cackling nonstop. So in particular, so I pulled up this tweet, uh, which is probably one of my favorite reactions to the movie, by somebody with the handle Feminist, who wrote, Mamma Mia 2 is a great sexuality litmus test. If the hottest part was Christine Baranski duetting with herself, you're a lesbian. If it was young Donna and Bill on the boat, you're bi. If you haven't seen Mamma Mia 2, you're a heterosexual. And I just absolutely love this sort of ownership that people have taken over it. And uh, in, in particular, uh, Cher is supposedly coming out with an album that's going to be exclusively uh, <laughs> album covers. Uh, so for me, I'm just it's, it's been heaps of fun just to see how queer people and our allies have just taken ownership of this. What <laughs> maybe will become a franchise. We'll see. Christina, how did you feel? I saw Mamma Mia 2, loved it, and actually recommended it on the last episode of The Waves that I was on. And I made mention of what I thought was an incredibly queer part of the film, which was that 
the basis of the film, you know, is like, oh, like, who's the father of this child? And so it's like the, this one woman who had sex with three men. Meryl Streep had sex with three men. And she doesn't know who's the father of her child. And then she dies and all the three men become best friends. And like, that is how gay friendships work, <laughs> at least in my life, is like, oh, you slept with that person and I slept with that person. Like, cool, we're friends now. It's basically the end of Sensei when everybody sleeps together. It's great. <laughs> So, yeah, I thought it was really gay and I loved it. Um, I have a pride and a provocation that are related to one another. Oh, my gosh. So, my pride for this month is DC finally has a new queer bar or a queer women-centered bar. Um, so, our one lesbian bar, Phase 1, closed down a couple years ago. It was the oldest or longest-running lesbian bar in the country it had been around forever. And since then, there's been a lot of bars for gay men that have opened up, which, yay. But, you know, not places I would go to hang out. Um, the new bar is specifically targeted to women. It's in a neighborhood with a lot of other queer stuff, including a dance party that I throw. It's lesbian owned and operated, unlike the old lesbian bar we had, which was owned by a gay man. But my provocation is the name of the bar, which is XX Plus. As in two X chromosomes. Oh, no. Which is, like, kind of funny because we, the podcast The Waves used to be called Double X, and it was a very bad name, and we changed it because, you know, we're arguing on the podcast all the time, and that, you know, two X chromosomes doesn't make you a woman, and, you know, you can be a woman without two X chromosomes, and it's just so sad to see somebody launching a new endeavor with that name. So a lot of trans and non-binary people have been up on the bar's Facebook feed mm. telling them the name is bad and I'm like, oh, did you guys really not like do a, a focus group or just think for a couple more minutes about it? But um, you know, I went to the soft opening but um, <laughs> and um, you know, it just goes to show, I guess, in my from my perspective that conversations that I think everyone is having everyone is not actually having. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I, I'm provoked by it. All right, so those are our prides and provocations. Now I think it's time for us to get into our theme. Brandon, take us there. So the theme of today's show is roots. Those cultural touchstones or moments in everyday life that either made us queer or made us realize we were queer. Uh, so the concept has been around for a while, uh, but the term root was, I think, invented or at the very, very least popularized by... But I'm a Cheerleader, a film from the year 1999 starring Natasha Lyonne, RuPaul, and Clea Duvall at a conversion therapy camp. Here's a clip from the film of the characters reporting their roots. I think it might be a great idea for Megan to be reminded of your root, Graham. My mother got married in pants. All right, let's see. Uh, Dolph. Too many... Locker room showers at the varsity team. Hillary? Um, old girl boarding school. Sinead? I was born in France. Clayton? My mom let me play in her pumps. I like balls. Why, thank you for that, Jill. Joe? Traumatic breath. So, yeah. Now, Megan. Do you see how easy it could be? You just have to dig down into those painful memories <laughs> and you'll find it. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. Um, so we thought it'd be entertaining if we, the outward co-hosts, shared our own roots um, and I'll kick it off. 
so to lots of my friends, I have zero doubt that this is surprising, but I'd say that one of my earliest roots is absolutely Donna Lewis, um, specifically her perfect song, I Love You Always Forever. Uh, so I, th- I think it came out in 95, 96, uh, so I was five or six years old. Uh, and I remember not taking much away from the lyrics, literally beyond the fact that Donna Lewis is absolutely infatuated with someone. And I say someone because the lyrics I learned today when I was looking them up have no explicit gender pronouns. Ooh. Oh, let's play it. Let's play it. Really good song. I'm getting gayer right now. <laughs> that she's just singing to this ambiguous you, which to my six-year-old self uh, just gave me free license to apply it to this this boy I had a crush on. Um, even if I didn't really think of it in those terms, I was just like, oh man, I kind of like feel the sentiment of this song and I'm thinking about this kid. But also the music video. It's just the sepia-toned Donna Lewis saucily dancing in a crop top and pants, uh, which is just all you really need. And I thought about this earlier, bonus points, because queer icon Betty Who actually covered the song a couple years ago. Oh, Uh, interesting. Yeah. And so now I sort of just take that as a tacit confirmation that my root was not wrong. Um, So, Christina, what are your roots? So I love thinking about roots because it's like a retroactive queering of my very heterosexual childhood. And, you know, I look back and I'm have always been like on the femme end of the spectrum. And so I was always dressing up in sequins and glitter and like ruffles, which now I think is very gay in its own way. But, you know, a lot of times when people look back at like women who are gay and what were they like as kids, it's like, well, tomboy and whatever. And that wasn't (laughs) me. But musical theater was something that I was always interested in. And, you know, it's all very processy and lots of feelings and very touchy and everyone's all over each other. And like, looking back, I just pity the adults that were our chaperones or directors or whatever, because we were so gross. (laughs) Also, my sister was a really great athlete in high school when I was in middle school. So I was always watching her soccer team full of women who were varying degrees of butch. But the moment I realized something was really amiss in my heterosexuality, I think I was maybe 10 or 11. No, I must have been like 11 or 12, reading a teen people magazine. And there was a picture of Kirsten Dunst that really (laughs) affected me, which is hilarious because, you know, I don't have any particular affection for Kirsten Dunst. I am not attracted to people who look like her generally. I think I've like ever been with like one or two blonde people in my entire life. But she's laying on a patch of grass (laughs) in a a crop top, which seems to be a, a through line in our roots. And I just thought like, huh, she's beautiful. And like, I think I want to look like her, but maybe I also want to be with her. It's that classic, like, do you or be you uh, back and forth that gay people go through a lot. So Mm -hmm. I forget even what I had seen her in at that point. But she's 
I think it might also just be the look on her face. It's incredibly seductive. I'm going to wait to see what you guys think of this photo I sent it. Oh. Oh, my God. This picture. <laughs> oh, this yellow moment. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and it's just very sun-kissed. But yeah, that was a moment where I was like, oh, shit, I think I can feel this way not only about like Jonathan Taylor Thomas and maybe at that point Brandon Boyd of Incubus, but also <laughs> like a woman. I love the, the zipper is pretty powerful. That little like ring, <laughs> ring zipper. Yeah, that was very in at that point. Brian, what's your root? So Brandon mentioned uh, a crop top being involved in his to some degree. So does mine. Oh, my God. All three of us have <laughs> yeah, crop Yeah, it's tops. true. Oh, my goodness. You're right. I just, I just realized that. Yeah, crop tops must be the thing that turns everyone queer. So my crop top in particular is on the actor Dante Basco in Hook, the 1991 Peter Pan movie in which he plays Rufio, uh, who's the leader of the Lost Boys. Oh my God, so gay. So yeah, so it's so it's Rufio. Uh, Rufio is yeah the leader of the Lost Boys. He I don't know how old he's supposed to be in the movie. I'm not gonna like think about that too much. But I saw this when I was probably five, so it's okay. He is wearing a crop top, sort of like a Mad Max look throughout, like a lot of feathers and like shoulder pads and, and very Burning Man. Yeah, very yeah, totally Burning Man. And there's like he does this thing with his mouth a lot where he like bites his lower lip and something about that I remember at the time it made me feel just you know a little a little tingly a little uncomfortable a little like uh, there's something about this I don't know if I want him to be like my big brother or if I want to be him like you said Christina uh, and now I recognize that I definitely wanted to have sex with him <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and I, you know, f- oddly enough, I don't think I've ever had sex with anyone that looks like that, uh, that, that wears that kind of outfit. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, yeah, I think I think seeing him lead the Lost Boys around made me want to be a maybe want to get lost myself. Let's say um, with with Rufio, yeah. We also asked a bunch of our queer slate colleagues to share their roots. So let's listen to their answers. I remember in kindergarten, oh, there was a friend of mine who I thought was like really pretty and I gave her candy one time and then she kissed me on the cheek and I was like blushing and then I was like, oh, that was weird. And I was like, thanks. And then my dad picked me up from school that day and I was like, dad, do girls kiss girls? <laughs> and I just remember asking, like asking that and he was just like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. After I realized what people were talking about, it took me a while to figure out what mine was, but I kind of get a little bit of thinking back into college and realize that my root is a roller derby girl. I think it was in the spring of my freshman year. I remember the scene very vividly. I was sitting in the cafeteria where people did homework, and I was sitting there doing homework. And far across the cafeteria, there was a really, really hot guy from my class and he was sagging his jeans very low, and his butt was very, was very well outlined by his boxers. And I saw him, got a boner right away, and there was there was nothing I could do about that. That it was an undeniable uh, signal from my body to my brain that I was attracted to men. And in that moment, I thought, "Oh wow, I am bisexual." And then for like a week. I basically like experimented on myself with different fantasies 
I don't know if you could call it introspection, but that's what it seemed like. And I concluded that I was gay. Like a month or so ago, I watched um, Who Framed Roger, Roger Rabbit for the first time in 25 years and uh, realized that I remembered like everything about the movie. And I had seen it in the theater when I was eight. And uh, the Jessica Rabbit character is supposed to be this like classic sort of like amalgamation of Hollywood femme fatales in like the 1940s. And I just I remember like being like, wow, this is this is amazing. She's amazing. What's happening here? And I can't I don't I don't remember like consciously feeling anything about that. Just sort of being like, what is this? I think that I came to my sexuality pretty late in my teens, certainly. And by the time I was old enough to sort of have one of these experiences, it was decidedly bound up in a lot of shame. So, like, I remember being going on a vacation or a trip to New York and just seeing, like, a Calvin Klein billboard. And then that being, like, sort of the be- the a whole new world, like, the beginning of this kind of years-long self-hatred that was, like, because I I was old enough to, like, actually process what this meant. One that I can hold on to is, you know, looking through the clothing catalog that we got and being really, really obsessed with the underwear section, specifically the bra section. And I didn't need a bra at the time. I didn't, you know, and I didn't, it's not that it was, it was pre-sexual. I wasn't like, whoa, I'll get a load of that. Except I kind of was at some part of my brain. And that was fun. There was nothing negative. No one was getting on me. But it can't have been entirely positive because I knew I shouldn't say anything. That was something different. And that's why, in a sense, I can remember it because, whoa, that was strange. That was something I didn't talk about. I say Josh Hartnett because he is what makes me remember the magazine Cosmo Girl. But really, it was the magazine Cosmo Girl that was my route because I would sneak into my sister's room when she, when no one was home and go to her little bookshelf and pull out the different issues of Cosmo Girl and open to the shirtless dude that they had in every single issue. And each week, they ha- each month, they had a different like guy and an interview with him, which was always very bland and boring, but like then just a shirtless picture of a guy. I have kind of an unusual story because I have two moms, and so I was raised by lesbian parents, and I feel like that like shifted my conception of all these things because it was much more, you know, I was growing up in the Bay Area. I was going to San Francisco Pride with my family, you know, the trajectory was there and there were these things that I could relate to much more easily. And so it wasn't like I was going outside of my realm to to discover this. It felt much more like these things were already like part of my upbringing. I feel like I kind of had less of a light bulb or spark moment and much more kind of the, it was in the environment that I had always been in. I didn't realize this until recently, but my obsession with my Lando Calrissian action figure, pretty sure that was a root. Ugh, those are all so good. And they made us wonder, do straight people have roots? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In a world of heteronormativity, no one really asks, when did you know you were straight? So to help us figure out whether straight people can pinpoint their own roots in heterosexuality, we have brought in straight correspondent Laura Bennett, a straight woman and Slate's Features Director, for what we hope will be a frequent outward segment called Straight Studies. Thank you for joining us, Laura. Uh, It is an honor to be here to represent heterosexuality in all of its banality. Thank you for having me. You are a worthy ambassador, I'm sure. (laughs) So you edit a new-ish Slate series called Spark notes where people write essays about their moments of sexual awakening. And I noticed that the first two entries and the only two entries so far have been from queer people. So uh, was that deliberate or what's going on there? Uh, You know, so it was not deliberate. We have gotten a lot of pitches for this feature so far. And the thing that I found pretty reliably, and this is, again, not to, you know, uh, no insult to straight people and not to discourage straight people from pitching this feature Uh, hopefully rather to encourage even better pitches from straight people going forward. But the pitches from LGBTQ people have just been so much more interesting and fully developed, whereas the straight people's spark note stories I've heard are like, I remember the first time I saw boobs or (laughs) my buddy's older brother had a Playboy. And there's like (laughs) 90,000 of them exactly in that vein. So I would generalize wildly based on the pitches I'm getting for this one feature by saying that it just seems like straight people are naturally much less self-reflective and more boring and cliched in writing about their own sexual development. You know, and I think my personal Sparknotes story, were I to tell it, would would reflect that also. Well, now I have no choice but to ask you to please (laughs) share your sexual awakening story. Oh, man, I did not mean to tee that up so neatly, but... uh, (laughs) I would say, like, I remember, for instance, my middle school crush, but my specific memories about my feelings about this guy are just like straight out of a bad YA novel. There is nothing <laughs> more psychologically interesting than like, he once said hey to me at a bat mitzvah, and I'll remember that forever. <laughs> and then the thing I very vividly remember is watching Channing Tatum in Step Up. And Oof. I was, I must have been in college, so that's not young enough, that's not like an age at which you're having key moments of, uh, you know, like light bulb moments in sexual development. But I just remember so vividly thinking to myself, I mean, I really think the extent of my self-analysis at that moment was, I guess I've got to get myself a man with 19 abs and really great (laughs) breakdancing abilities because it seems like that's what I'm into. And who among us? Who really? among us? Yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that and was wrong. And did you, your no, husband, I've never no, met him. No. Does he Bless his heart. Out? He has fewer than 19 abs <laughs> by at least 18 abs. <laughs> um, he's the best. But I do think that as a straight teen, regardless of how momentous and consuming and overwrought a crush could be, the dawning of all this stuff mostly did feel like I was kind of blithely climbing into some rushing cultural current following the exact arc I had been conditioned socially and culturally to believe I would one day follow. And Mm -hmm. I think this all helps to explain why 
adult straight people in trying to conjure these early sexual awakenings memories resort to broad touchstones like the first movie that showed me boobs or the Playboy that I found under my brother's bed. But, yeah, who knows? Mm -hmm. And I just feel like those are the easiest, most obvious reference points to reach for in the absence of real nuanced self-reflection. Do you think, I mean, so one of the conversations we were having in our workplace slack around this uh, idea of, you know, straight people maybe not thinking as clearly about their roots because they didn't have to have that moment of like, oh, shit, I am, uh, my attractions are being directed in a way that doesn't follow the way I thought they were going to be or the way that everyone wants them to be. And somebody was saying, you know, it's it might be awkward for straight men to talk about it or because it just seems a little gross and creepy. Like, right. haha, my first boner. Like, here's <laughs> what happened. Um, do you think that there's a difference in the way straight women process that sort of awakening and straight men? I think that's a very good question. And yes, I mean, especially... Uh, not to invoke Me Too egregiously, but I think it is a weird moment in uh, cultural history for a straight man to, like, swagger onto the pages of Slate and be like, my first boner was a great moment in my life, and here's what I remember about it. I think, you know, I've talked to my husband a little bit about this, and I believe his is the first time I saw boobs in a movie, and he's like, I would just never write about that because I don't think anybody wants to read that. And I think that would it would be at once cliched and boring and uh he you know he'd worried about seeming like drooly in a way that no straight man wants to seem right now and meanwhile queer people are sort of used to processing their coming out stories and sort of performing i mean people will ask all the time like oh when did you know and when did your parents know and blah 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 and so like narratives start to develop in our heads. I even love talking to my friends about it because it is a it's it's something that I love about queer people and why I feel like I'm friends with so many queer people because it warrants such self-reflection. So you know that people who are in that community have already sort of done all this processing around themselves just because they've needed to establish themselves outside of that mode that everyone else is going through. Right. And I just can't believe, I mean, I can believe, but the pitches I've gotten so far for this feature, not from straight people, but more generally, have been so good and all so different and such fully developed arcs. Like there's the moment of realization and there's this processing, as you say, around it. And it's just, I've just been amazed at how, yeah, interesting and varied and like, wise and self-analytical all these different root stories have been. Thank you so much for coming in, Laura. You've been you've really enlightened us to the <laughs> the struggle of the straight person. What in, what a struggle it is. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. In a provocative piece this summer in the Washington Post called Biology is Not Destiny, Alex Barish writes that before Love is Love became the rallying cry gracing protest signs and storefronts for Pride Month, the go-to gay slogan by way of Lady Gaga was born this way. It was a succinct articulation of an argument some saw as essential to acceptance. Same gender attraction was neither a choice nor a contagion, but rather an innate aspect of identity. But this idea is not the straightforward civil rights argument it purveyors seem to believe it to be. 
He goes on to explore why biological essentialist arguments about queer identity are so appealing, even though the scientific research behind them isn't very strong. And he asks if trying to find a biological root for queerness is even a good idea in the first place. Uh, we're so excited to have Alex in the studio. He is the production assistant for The Waves and Slate's Culture Gabfest, and the author of this fantastic piece. Uh, welcome, Alex. Thank you. Excited to be here. So I think to start out, you know, I think most of us here and listening are vaguely familiar with notions of like gendered brain structures and searches for gay or trans genes. These are things that have been in the news for, you know, decades now. But you write that much of much of that underlying research is pretty flawed. Uh, so I wondered if you could just catch us all up on what the state of this sort of science is right now. What's good? What's bad? What's going on? Sure. So the main problem here is sort of a problem that applies across neuroscience, which is that uh, the human brain is very complicated, right. and the technology that we have to interpret it, namely fMRIs, it's it's good technology, but it's it's difficult to interpret. So oftentimes, if you know you have a brain scan and a region of the brain lights up, you might think that it means one thing, but because different regions of the brain are involved in so many different functions, it's hard to say whether that's really what that means. Right. And you also mentioned that perhaps uh, having a trans identity, for example, would change you know, that yes. experience would change the brain, yeah. not, not that the brain would be that way from birth. Right? Yeah, exactly. The The sort of problem of correlation versus causation yeah. is a big issue because, uh, you know, neuroplasticity is a thing. Essentially, uh, nerves that fire together, wire together. So if you are repeatedly engaging in the same behaviors or subjected to the same environmental factors, what you do and what happens to you and how you move through the world is going to shape the way that your brain uh, is itself shaped. Right. And that's true of everyone, not just, you know, trans identities. But it's hard to disentangle, say, gender dysphoria from uh, something that is innate in the, the structure of the brain. Right. And so I would say that, like, reading this piece left me personally feeling pretty suspicious about uh, doing this kind of research at all. But don't you want to know why you are trans and gay? Um, or is that a question that, that we should want to have answered in the first place? I guess what I would say about that is that I have other questions I want answered first. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that we as a society are sort of... I mean, I mean there, there are people who, if they had an exact region of the brain or an exact gene that they could hold responsible for transness or queerness they would want to eliminate that or, you know, prevent it or use it as a means of policing access to care, for example. I guess I would rather have answers to questions about the effects of, you know, long-term use of hormone replacement therapy. There still mm -hmm. hasn't really been an extensive longitudinal study on that. And, you know, LGBTQ healthcare generally is a pretty big blind spot for medicine. So if we have time and resources and scientists who are interested in working with these communities, then I would rather that they focused on that than on something as arbitrary and ultimately not really materially useful as what's the gene, what's the brain region. Yeah, hearing you hearing you say that almost makes me wonder if it's like it's sort of like a straight question. Yeah. Like in a, in a way it's like like what where do these people come from? Um yeah. It, it it yeah, it, it seems So the thing to me that the the reason why the biological explanation for transness and queerness has not rung true for me, and I think this goes to your point, Brian, that it seems like a very straight thing to ask, is that there are so many complexities to queerness that mm -hmm. the idea of an on or off gene does not account for. So 
For instance, if I'm attracted to women who have traditionally masculine characteristics, big muscles and deep voices and body hair, like is my gene gay or not gay? (laughs) If I date trans and non-binary people who are assigned female at birth, but like identify as men, is my biological queerness there or not? I mean, I think it's it rests on this idea of an on or off switch that I think doesn't ring true for a lot of people's identities. Yeah. And I think similar to what you're just saying, Christina, like it almost seems like this almost assumes that we have a definitive sort of understanding of like what a particular sex, what a particular gender is. Um, Mm -hmm. It just seems incredibly sort of simplistic um, oh, like we have all these answers. This thing can be whittled down to one specific thing when that's not ever the case. Yeah. Um, I know that the argument has been that, you know, by by advancing the argument that, you know, we're born in the wrong body or that we were born this way, uh, that that will help queer and trans people get more rights. Um but in your piece, you argue that that might not be the case. So does that do you think that argument that people have been using for decades is flawed? Yeah, this was something really interesting because going in, I, I did sort of assume that born this way style arguments were helpful. And of course, they have been helpful to a point in combating this idea of queerness as like a quote unquote social contagion where you're infecting the people around you just by being visibly gay or trans. If only. (laughs) (laughs) Recruiting and that sort of thing. And and that's sort of coming to the fore again with uh, trans rights. There's this thoroughly debunked concept of uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, that if you see a trans guy on YouTube, you're going to turn trans, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which I I think we can pretty conclusively say is not how this works. But um, it it is interesting. I was looking at a 2016 paper from this psychologist, Patrick Krzanska, and his team found that while most people who were participating in this survey uh, believed that sexual minorities were born this way, that was true of people who were you know, in favor of queer rights and also people who were homophobic. So it's it's sort of something that can be interpreted either way. If you are homophobic, you're going to perceive a biological origin as a flaw or a, a defect or, you know, it's something the person can't help, but it's still something that's wrong with them or something that makes them fundamentally different from you in a way that is uh, alienating or othering. And if you're you know, pro LGBT rights, you're going to say, of course, it's it's not a choice. It's just how these people are. And we need to embrace that. So that in and of itself is not really a point for the movement. And I think uh, we should we should be conscious of that and proceed accordingly. So, Alex, I really love one of the lines you have toward the end of the piece. Uh, you write, it doesn't help the LGBTQ community to pin our validity on what we might learn. If only we can scan the right brains or pinpoint the right genes. Uh, And so to me, this sort of speaks to this need for a pretty fundamental culture shift, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of away from the the dogma of science and data points. And so I'm wondering, um, kind of the looking ahead uh, avenue of things, uh, do you have any thoughts on how to make moves in that direction? Or have you seen sort of uh, organizations or groups that are really sort of trying to to recalibrate the the way that LGBTQ people uh, sort of advocate for our rights. I really wish I had a, a neat answer for this one, um, but I do think that 
I, I recognizing the impact of other elements is going to be really important going forward. So, for example, when A Fantastic Woman came out earlier this year and when it then won the Oscar, uh, Chile had been very hesitant to advance this gender identity bill. But now even the conservative president is kind of more on board than he was before because the world is looking to the way trans people are treated in Chile because that was represented on screen in A Fantastic Woman. And it sort of went to great lengths to humanize its trans protagonist and, you know, treat her with dignity and show what she was going through. So just generally trying to shore up trans rights through other avenues rather than focusing on what scientific studies do or don't tell us is probably the best way forward. But Uh I'm very open to suggestions (laughs) across other avenues. Yeah, I mean, I think we're also just all going to have to get a lot more comfortable with choice, with like like making arguments about and talking about identity in terms of choice, which is something I think we've all been very nervous about for a good reason. Um, But it feels more and more, to me anyway, more and more crucial to be able to like, to, to live in that that argument yeah, too. absolutely. Just respecting people's autonomy generally. You know, if someone says that they're trans, you don't need to scan their brain. Just take their word for it and sort of right. go from there. All right. I think that's a great place to stop this conversation. Uh, thank you, Alex, so much for coming in and for doing this piece. It's amazing. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the debut episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. All right, so that's just about it for Outward this week. Um, But before we close each episode, we're going to share some super official updates to the infamous gay agenda. Brandon, what are your marching orders this month for our recruits and allies? So my number one recommendation uh, is Lorraine Hansberry. Specifically, I recommend that everyone read Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry. Uh, It's not released until next month, but I was lucky enough to get my hands on an advanced copy. But it's just a really, really, really fascinating biography by this professor at Princeton University, Imani Perry. And she is writing about uh, mid-century writer and activist Lorraine Hansberry, uh, who most people probably know uh, because of her 1959 play, A Raisin in the Sun. But in particular, what Perry does is uh, really illuminate some of the often unconsidered facets of Hansberry's life and activism, specifically her identity as a lesbian, and brings them into the 21st century. And so it's just this really fascinating, uh, terrific exploration of someone who was way ahead of her time. Christina, what do you have? I am going to recommend a series of pieces about queer sex on Autostraddle. These published in July, and they blew my fucking mind. So Autostraddle gave a survey to about 3,600 queer women and non-binary folks, and a very small number of uh, trans men, I think, also took the survey. And they had people identify as tops or bottoms or switches or none of the above and then had them rate what sex things they like to do and whether they like to receive those things or give those things. So it's not a huge sample pool and certainly not representative. 
But Autostraddle makes up for it by doing so much data analysis. There's a million different charts and infographics you can look at. And I feel like I could spend an entire day just I had all three of their the posts that they did on it, one about tops, one about bottoms, one about switches. And I was just like clicking back and forth and comparing and (laughs) um, felt like I needed to make a bulletin board with like strings going from like different photos. And like I was just uh, an insane person on a trail. And so there was just like some really crazy facts that that the survey elevated, like only about 55 percent of switches enjoy strap on sex and tops and bottoms more like 70 percent like strap on sex. Like, huh, never would have known. (laughs) One part that I felt was particularly illuminating was only a little bit more than half of the tops who took the survey said they liked being the ones to pursue a partner. Oh, wow. And and even fewer bottoms and switches said that they wanted to pursue a partner. And in fact, more tops said that they liked being pursued than pursuing, which I'm like, someone has to be the pursuer, <laughs> you know? And it, it, I was like, oh, maybe that's why you go into a lesbian bar and everybody's just like giving each other meaningful eye contact. Standing around. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, come on, people. Um, so I think it's like really will be so fun for queer people to read, but also for straight people because, I, you know, there's that dumb joke, which has basis in truth, about like, oh, no one knows how lesbians have sex. Well, read this data and you'll have some ideas about how lesbians have sex. Um, and it also made me think of Cameron Esposito's recent comedy special, Rape Jokes, which is so good. And I also highly recommend people go and watch that on her website. But um, there's one part of it where she's like, here's what I want for you, straight people. I want you to have gay sex. And what she means by that is like, there are just so many options out there for what you can do and who can do it to you and who you can do it to. And I feel like this survey that Autostraddle gave is just really broad and and does a pretty good job representing all the different ways people can identify and have fun together, and um, it just made me smile. So we'll have a link to those pieces on our show page at Slate.com. Brian, what's your agenda for us this month? Absolutely. So I um, just came back from a Radical Fairy gathering. Um, So for those who don't know about the Radical Fairies, it's a sort of loosely organized um, queer, um, like quasi-separatist group that uh, sort of started in the late 70s. Um, and it's just sort of organized around um, exploring what uh, like queer utopia might look like is one, is one way of, of putting it. And so they have these sanctuaries around the country. There's a few of them um, and they have gatherings at those sanctuaries. And I have gone now for a couple of years to the one up in Vermont and it is it is just the most like affirming experience I can I've ever had as a queer person. Um, it's a place where everyone is queer of some sort, and you all work together to feed each other and to put on a play and to to um, just just create a sort of little mini society that of what the world would look like if if everyone was queer and awesome. Mm-hmm. So my recommendation, I guess, is is that folks seek out uh, queer separatist spaces <laughs> um separatism has sort of like a bad rap um i think but and i don't i don't mean like ones necessarily that are like hostile to the world but but ones where 
really the focus is put on on queer folks uh, and what our needs are, what our traumas are, and and what our sort of values are, honestly, um, because this thing, this particular fat rad figure gathering has become like the high point of my year and something that gives me sort of the energy to deal with everything else I have to do uh, all year. And so um, I really would love for uh, all of our listeners and, and folks who are interested in something like that to seek it out and, and have it um, because it exists and it is wonderful. That sounds so lovely. Yeah. All right. And there you have it. Plenty to keep you all busy dismantling the heteropatriarchy until our next episode. While you're at it, please send us feedback, topic ideas, and advice questions. Uh, we're, we would love to have an advice segment on the show, uh, but we need to feed on your uniquely queer problems and dilemmas. <laughs> so send them in. The address for that is going to be outwardpodcast at slate.com. That's outwardpodcast at slate.com. Thanks to Alex Barash, Laura Bennett, Shirley Chan, Benjamin Frisch, Danielle Hewitt, Andrew Kahn, Aaron Nichols, Daniel Schrader, June Thomas, Aria Velasquez, and Sophie Worthen. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is hovering over us like a spectral lesbian presence. Or a fairy god daddy. God zaddy. God's fairy god zaddy. Zaddy. If you liked our inaugural Outward podcast, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. So we'll be back in your feeds on September 19th. Until then, bye, Christina. Bye, Brian. And bye, Brandon. Bye, you too. Thanks for listening and stay gay. You can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.